Oopsla Podcast Episode 13, Aggressive Learning. The Oopsla Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla Conference, which takes place in October 2007 in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. The Oopsla Podcast is co-produced with Software Engineering Radio and with Dibsum Thinking. I'm Daniel Steinberg, your host for this episode. We talked to Ted Neward on the telephone about adding to your tool belt. Lately, Neward has been aggressively learning a bunch of programming languages, and we talked about what he's been learning lately and about the gap between academics and practitioners. We also talked about the Scala tutorial, one of two he's co-teaching at Oopsla 2007, and about what he likes about the language. My name is Ted Nord, and um, basically, as many people have described me, I am a uh, very large geek uh, who spends a lot of time in the Java and .NET space. Uh, it was, I, I've done historically a bunch of stuff with C++ and uh, Windows and Linux platforms and... I don't know, pretty much just about anything uh, under the sun. One of the, uh, one of the nice abilities I have as an independent is to be able to pretty much study whatever seems attractive to me at the moment. And at this particular moment, a variety of things have sort of caught my eye, one of which being the generalized area of programming languages. I've been studying a lot of different languages. Uh, I'm actually doing a lot of research on... You know, trying to build custom languages, so I'm looking a lot at some of the compiler construction tools, things like uh, Antler, and uh, doing a little bit of, of old-school research on Flex and Bison and, and parser generators and some of that kind of stuff, some code manipulation and, and code, um, I guess manipulation is probably the best word for it, uh, generation, I guess. Uh, toolkits in the .NET space like Phoenix and in the Java space like uh, Java Assist and BCEL and so forth. And then in terms of existing languages, you know, I'm, I'm interested, of course, in Scala. I'm interested in uh, F Sharp in the .NET space. I'm interested in OCaml and a couple other ones, Erlang. And that's just principally in the programming language space. You know, this doesn't even get into some of the, the frameworks like, you know, WCF and Celtics and WPF and, and uh, Flex and a bunch of stuff. So I get interested in a lot of different things. Mostly this is just for a bigger tool belt, so to speak, right? You know, th this is how geeks measure them, themselves against one another, right? Whoever's got the biggest tool belt wins. Um, you know, some of it, I, I think what's happened over the years is, you know, the academic world and the production world, the, the practitioner world, have sort of separated from one another to the point where the practitioners don't really trust a lot of what the academics are doing because in many cases when the when the academics are, are researching a topic, they don't generally take it far enough to make it uh, practitioner-friendly. So, for example, um, for many years, uh, a lot of people invested some time in, in academic exercise on the Smalltalk platform, and a lot of people sort of looked at that and said, well, okay, that's, that's all well and good, that's interesting, but I can't use it in my day job. I mean, a lot of the academic work that people were working on fell victim to that same complaint. I can't use it in my day job. And one of the things that's happened over the last half decade or so is that the emergence of a, a core set of virtual machines, the JVM, the CLR, et cetera, have really made it possible now for the academics 
to produce languages and tools and so forth for these platforms that can then be sort of integrated into a production tool chain. So, for example, I mean, this was really what allowed aspect-oriented programming and Aspect-J in particular to even be considered for production quality because it was built on top of the JVM. You know, Gregor and his team did not have to go off and create a new garbage collector and a new bytecode verifier and a new all of that stuff. They just built on top of the existing JVM infrastructure and toolchain. And that meant I could use Aspect-J and AOP and these other tools as part of my servlet, EJB, uh, JSF, whatever infrastructure. So in many respects, yes, I'm looking a lot at what's going on in the academic world. I'm looking at a lot of the languages and so forth that they're creating out there, but with a very, very strong eye towards how would I use this as part of production? How would I, you know, I don't have a particular project in mind. You know, there's no one particular project that I'm working on that says, oh, yeah, this just screams for Scala. But it's much more of a sense of, you know, so... You know, I have a project, I'll just, you know, make one up, or I have a particular problem, you know, that I hear a friend of mine describing. What tools do I have in the tool belt? What is, you know, what, what available things are there in the tool chain that might be of interest to people that could potentially solve this problem? And then I usually write up some, you know, some prototype or sample code or something like that just to sort of get an idea of how well it would work to know whether or not it would be something that I would suggest as part of a client engagement later. The academics, in many respects, you know, the people that practitioners routinely uh, denigrate, you know, as being part of the ivory tower and so forth, the thing that a lot of practitioners don't realize is that the ivory tower gives you a great perspective in terms of seeing all these different languages and all these different approaches and looking at ways to try to solve problems in different ways. Practitioners sometimes lose sight of the forest for the trees, you know, the problem with the academics, of course, is when you're high up in the ivory tower, you know, you don't get an idea, you don't get much in the way of feedback about your ideas. Okay, so we think you should do X, and we're so removed from what people are actually doing that we don't hear the feedback that doing X, in fact, leads to these problems Y and Z. What, what I would like to do, what I try to do in many respects, is, is I try to close that gap and try to say, okay, look, you know, if I do this, this is what happens, and if I do that, this is what happens, and, you know, this is a good consequence, or this is a bad consequence, or this is a consequence that nobody cares about, you know, besides maybe a very, very small select group. I'm not going to stand here and say that I am a, a advanced Ruby programmer, for example. I'm, you know, I'm fluent in Ruby, but I'm not a master of it. Um, what I will do is I will find people that are masters of Ruby, and I will talk to them, and I will listen to what they say, and I will incorporate that as a whole into sort of the my view, my perspective of what Ruby is and Ruby does, for example, so that I don't have to spend two years writing Ruby code in order to achieve mastery status. I can get enough of it as necessary to sort of understand the concepts. And then if I start writing some code and it doesn't exactly work the way I want it to, well then I you know, I email, you know, like Dave Thomas or or I email, you know, Bruce Tate or, or one of the other, you know, acknowledged Ruby masters and say, Hey, why didn't this work? and let them you know, explain to me more the Ruby way. For Oopsla, you know, the crowd has a tendency to be a little bit more academic than you find at a lot of other conferences, but there's still a, there's still a very large streak of practitioner that runs through all of this. I mean, you know, for the most part, 
you know, people who are coming to Uppsala are perhaps more aware of what's going on in academia, but, the, you know, they're still on a daily basis making their living by writing code for somebody who's paying them a paycheck to do so. Um, and so I guess in many respects, the tutorials that I'm a part of, one of which is Link and the other one is Scala, um, each with the respective creators of those technologies, which I'm, you know, very happy to be a part of both, you know, I think I think the goal there is very much to say, look, um, there's some really interesting academic, you know, researchy style topics behind these technologies. Uh, but in many respects, a, a large percentage, at least what I would like to see, you know, the, the the tutorial attendee get out of it, is to realize that you know these concepts lead to definite. Uh, benefits, and so let's not spend so much time talking about you know monadic comprehensions and and why that makes your life better, but let's talk about the fact that because Scala treats everything you know as a built-in immutable type by default, it means that your concurrency you know concerns are much much smaller. You know, not not so much. Let's not spend so much time talking about you know all of the academic ins and outs, but let's spend some some time talking about you know, why does this make your life, the practicing programmer's life, much, much easier? Martin Odersky, when they created uh, the, the, the scalable language, which is where we get the name Scala, one of the things that they held as a design goal initially was to compile and run on both the CLR and the JVM. The thing of it is, as time has gone on, they've, it was pretty clear as you sort of followed the various Scala releases, it was pretty clear that the CLR was kind of a second-class citizen. You know, the, the, the mappings, the type mappings that, that Scala has as its built-in type system were much more closely mapped against the Java Virtual Machines types than they were against the .NET types. And as a matter of fact, I think it was a week or two ago on the mailing list back in early July, um, the guys who are working on Scala basically said, look, you know, we've, we've, up until this point, we've been maintaining a, a .NET, a CLR uh, version of the Scala compiler, if you will, and we've just basically decided to stop doing that. If anybody else wants to pick up on it and run with it as an open source project, you know, please feel free. We'll help you, blah, blah, blah. But they've basically announced that Scala will, at least in terms of future versions, be a JVM-first language, which is a pretty reasonable decision, if you ask me. Languages that try to cross-compile across platforms, just for, for whatever reason, they have a tendency not to turn out so well. Um, you know, languages which define their own platforms, a la Lisp and Java and, and, you know, the CLR to a lesser degree, you know, they, they get to make some decisions, and now it's up to the virtual machine to map to the underlying operating system. Those, those distinctions can be, you know, minimized pretty, pretty clearly. You know, the Java has done a remarkable job, for example, of making the underlying operating system pretty irrelevant. But languages which try to do the same thing have a tendency to... You know, they, they, they don't map real well. Let's just, let's just leave it at that. So the decision for Scala to become a sort of Java-first or Java-only language is a reasonable one. And, you know, in my mind, I think it's a smart one. You know, it's 
predominantly the Java community is interested or has been historically interested in building large-scale solutions. Um, you know, the, the ubiquitous Java servlet container, the ubiquitous EJB slash spring, et cetera, et cetera, containers. Um, you know, we've been interested in the server side, let's scale to, you know, decent to large size numbers of, of concurrent customers and so forth. That, um, that sort of traditional middleware world. And the thing of it is, Scala being principally a functional language, means that you know the the general style of programming here is is very similar to the mathematical function in that you know each time i run a value through this particular algorithm i get the same result and there is no there's no carryover effects there's no shared state there's you know it, and this means that it will scale well particularly across multiple threads of execution lots of of concurrency going on inside the environment which very much describes the server side environment in which a lot of java programmers find themselves so the thing that really speaks to me about Scala is the fact that you know it it, it helps address it helps you know, face squarely the issues that a lot of Java programmers have in the server environment from day one. The other thing that I think is very very interesting about it um, is the fact that it's a functional language. The fact that it's an implicitly strongly typed language. Uh, they do a lot of compiler calculations to do to figure out what what various types are so that you as the programmer don't have to be so explicit about it. One of the principal criticisms that the Ruby community has leveled against languages like Java and C sharp is how often we have to remind the compiler of what type it is that we're working with right so if I say you know, string X equals quote, blah, 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 quote. You know, I, the, the string there is really sort of useless and unnecessary, except because the language has sort of required that it be there. In Scala, I can simply say val X equals, and then string blah, 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 string, you know, uh, I'm sorry, quote, blah, 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 quote. Um, and the, the, the compiler will be able to infer, because it's a string on the right-hand side of the expression, well, then X must be a string type variable or value or whatever. Um, this, in many respects, saves the programmer a certain amount of time and a certain amount of thinking, particularly when we you know, combine this with function return types and so forth. He can simply say, you know, X equals function call. And I don't have to worry about what the specific type of X is supposed to be. The compiler will infer that for me. Now, occasionally, I may have to help the compiler resolve some ambiguity, but those are fairly rare cases, and, you know, I still spend 90% of the time not worrying about those issues. The, 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 the reason why the Java language was written the way it was was because, in many cases, this was kind of the way things were done in C++. And C++ did not have the advantage of a runtime uh, execution engine, a la the Java Virtual Machine, that we have. And so many of the decisions that the compiler couldn't know at compile time, the runtime most certainly does know at runtime. And so, you know, in many respects, what we're seeing now is people realizing that it's okay to, you know, take advantage of the runtime and to, to let the runtime be more a visible part of the whole language experience. But even in that, I mean, even that notwithstanding, 
there were a number of cases where the Java programming language just chose not to try to infer types because that tends to make the compiler a lot more complex, a lot more difficult. And one of the original goals for the Java language was simplicity. And, you know, right or wrong, the Java language has slowly grown more and more and more complex, largely, I believe, because the programmers who have been using it have required you know, greater and greater power, and so that has demanded greater and greater complexity. And the net result is, you know, now we're at a point where these these compilers, uh, these languages, demand a certain degree of functionality. And, and, you know, I think it's about time, in many respects, that we start asking more from the compilers. You know, there, there's a group of people, uh, many of whom, you know, I consider friends, that will, you know, that will tell you that a dynamic language um, or dynamically typed or loosely typed language is a much better bet because the compiler gets out of the way and it doesn't require some of these quote-unquote silly rules to be in place. One friend of mine, as a matter of fact, has a, a quote where he says, you know, in five years we will look at the compiler as a very weak form of unit testing. And, you know, I agree with him. But I think rather than say, let's throw away that automated test that takes place every time you run the compiler, let's instead make that test, that, that sequence of tests, to be as strong as possible, which is really what type inferencing and, and these, these other compiler enhancements that we're seeing in Scala, that's really what that's about, to my mind, is instead of throwing away strong typing entirely, let's make it stronger. Let's, make, let's get better guarantees out of it. Um, so that I, as a programmer, don't have to spend all that time writing those those particular tests that the compiler could test for me. I'll let it do that. I'll focus on those tests that the the compiler can't do. You know. Um, so I just think it's it's in general it's a it's a case of let's not let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Strong typing has served us well for many years. And granted, you know, it's, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's never going to replace the idea of unit tests. But there's certainly no reason for me to have to, you know, there's certainly no reason for me to have to do all of that work myself, let the compiler do as much of it as it can. In terms of the, the tutorial uh, at Uppsala on Scala, um, you know, the, the, again, as I said, I'm, I, I feel privileged to be doing it with Martin Odersky, the guy who created the Scala language, uh, who was also one of the principals behind generic Java and, and some of the other interesting Java language enhancements that we've seen over the years. Um, you know, so in many cases, to me, this is like, you know, sitting at the feet of the master, so to speak. Um, and in that, you know, we're, we're certainly, I don't think we're going to have time in the tutorial to sort of go over, you know, every, every feature, every capability of the Scala language. It's really more of a let's get, you, let's get you comfortable with the tool chain, let's get you comfortable with some of the concepts behind Scala, let's, let's give you, um, let's give you some, some sandbox, if you will, in which to, to experiment, in which to play. Um, Martin has said that he's actually got a hands-on exercise that involves writing a swing client using Scala, uh, using some mix-ins and using some actors to really sort of drive home the point that this is a language that's, you know, not just for, you know, server execution, as I mentioned earlier, but, you know, as a general purpose programming language. Um, and anybody who's interested, I also strongly encourage them to, um, uh, to Google on uh, the Lyft 
framework, LIFT, a gentleman by the name of David Pollack has done a, um, uh, a sort of a, originally he called it Scala with sales, um, and now he, he's generalized it to, to call it the LIFT framework. And really, I think it's probably one of the best examples we've got right now in terms of, you know, the advantages to the programmer of the Scala programming language. You know, in some cases, you don't really get a language until you see something non-trivial done in it. And Lyft, I think, does a good job of, of exposing that to someone who, up until now, has been doing websites in JSF and Velocity and, you know, JSPs and so forth. Um, you know, Oopsla as a whole, I think, is a great conference. Um, you know, previous years I have not spoken there simply because I didn't really think I had a whole lot to contribute to that community. So I'm really kind of excited to be there uh, doing the two tutorials this year. Um, and, you know, to anybody who's listening, I, I encourage uh, encourage them to, you know, find me at the conference and, uh, you know, introduce themselves and, uh, you know, Tell me, tell me what their interest in is in what their interest is with things like Scala and Link and you know any of the other infinite various languages that are out there. I'm always interested in, in hearing other languages that I haven't played around with before and, and discovering what new and interesting things that they bring to the table. Ted Neward is co-teaching tutorials on Scala and Link at Oopsla 2007. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>